Physics World. Hello and welcome to the Physics World Stories podcast. I'm Andrew Glester and in this episode we're going to be exploring physics at the movies, which also happens to be the topic of the November issue of Physics World magazine. In this episode we'll hear from Paul Franklin, the man who won the Oscar for the special effects in the Christopher Nolan film Interstellar. We'll hear from Jill Tarter, the former director of the Centre for SETI Research and one of the women credited with being part of the inspiration for the character of Ellie Arroway in Carl Sagan's Contact. And we'll hear from Andy Weir, the man who wrote The Martian. But first, this month, I travelled to MCM Comic Con in London and there, surrounded by people dressed as characters from all sorts of comics and movies among the stalls selling all manner of science fiction and fantasy memorabilia, I met Paul Franklin, the creative director of DNEG, one of the world's leading visual effects companies for film and television. Interstellar is a film by Christopher Nolan. It was the fifth picture I worked on with Chris. I did all three of the Dark Knight movies and also Inception. And Chris is a filmmaker who likes to put as much reality as possible in front of the camera. So even if we're going to extraordinary places in the story, like we travel across the universe in Interstellar, he'll try and find real locations, build real sets, real props, have actors out on the locations, really being as much as possible in the places that they're meant to be in the film. And then what we do with the visual effects is we build upon the filmed reality, we add to it. So a good example would be uh, the ice planet, uh, Dr. Mann's planet, where we went out to Iceland and we filmed on a glacier. And then what we did is we digitally erased all of the Icelandic mountains and replaced them with more extraordinary ice shapes and huge icebergs floating in the sky and things like that. So that's a combination of reality and, and fantasy. But the emphasis on the visual effects is to be as real as you possibly can. But perhaps the most well-known thing from Interstellar is the black hole that we created. And we were incredibly lucky there. We had an amazing scientific advisor, Professor Kip Thorne of Caltech, Pasadena. Kip won the Nobel Prize for Physics in 2017. He's one of the world's greatest physicists and is an expert on black holes, space-time, wormholes. You know, he's basically, he carries the torch for Einstein's legacy. And he gave us the mathematics, well, in fact, Einstein's mathematics. He figured out how to take Einstein's equations and turn them into a piece of software through a collaboration with our research and development team. And what the software did is it correctly calculated the way that the light bends as it moves through the warped space around the black hole. So when you see the black hole in the movie, it's being mainly driven by Einstein's physics. It's not us making it up. It's not fantasy. That is what the science tells you it looks like. And that, for me, as a visual effects artist, that was the most extraordinary thing to be able to do. It was an incredible collaboration. So you say it's a collaboration. Did you meet Kip Thorne to talk to him? Oh, all the time, yeah. No, I met very early on in pre-production. Chris handed me uh, the notes that he'd got from Kip, because Kip originally came up with the idea for Interstellar. It was his idea to make the movie in the first place, a sci-fi movie with real science inside it. And Chris sent me over to Kip's house to talk to him to figure out how to make the physics look as good as possible. And I found that Kip was an incredible communicator, very, very collaborative, and really had so much time for us. And you know, We were working with Kip pretty much constantly for about 18 months, uh, day in, day out, emails going back and forth between London and Pasadena. And then afterwards, we continued to collaborate, and we actually co-authored a uh, scientific paper 
with Kit, which is kind of extraordinary. For, I, I'm an art school graduate to be on a science paper with Kip as a co-author, uh, because our simulation of the black hole revealed some interesting details that people had not seen before about black holes. So because you made a film about black holes, you've added to scientific knowledge about black holes. Yeah, I mean, I would it's, look, it's not going to change the way people think about these things, but it, it revealed some interesting things that people hadn't seen before because nobody had ever had to simulate a black hole at the resolution that we were doing for our film. Do you know what it revealed? The black hole we simulated in the movie is a supermassive black hole spinning at very nearly the speed of light, so it's 99.999% speed of light, and it's dragging the space-time with it around it, so you've got all these very warped geodesics, and it swirls it up, almost like as if you've, you know, stuck a spoon into a tub of ice cream or something and twisted it well, or cake mix, round and round and round. It does that to the space-time, and the light getting refracted through it, you see multiple images of stars, and it was far more detailed and more intricate than any of us had expected, because nobody had ever simulated at this resolution for an IMAX movie. And so that was, uh, that was the new science we got out of it. Brilliant. So when I went to see Interstellar, I saw the trailer months before, and then, uh, you know, I'm a big space nerd. Sure. Are you? Yeah, absolutely. No, I grew up watching men walking on the moon in the 1960s and early 70s, and one of the great things about Interstellar is I've been able to meet so many extraordinary people, including three of the men who walked on the moon. So uh, Charlie Duke... Uh, Harrison Schmidt and, of course, Buzz Aldrin. How does making Interstellar mean that you get to meet them? You get invited to a lot of scientific conferences and music things and things like that <laughs> and shows. So I, I put on a concert with, uh, collaborating with Kit and Hans Zimmer. We made a concert as a tribute to the Apollo 50th anniversary and we had all the uh, Apollo and NASA astronauts with us. You know, seven of the guys who were part of the original program. They're all, you know, getting on a bit now. They're all in their 80s, but you know, they're amazing individuals. How does it feel for you as a space nerd who's then been involved in it to sit there and, and see that black hole? It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. You know, it's it was very, very rewarding creatively. Uh, it's always great when everybody there's such a great response to the film. You know, a lot of people went to see it. Uh, you couldn't really ask for more than that. So yeah, it was a great experience. Are there space films that you've seen? that you, th you wish you'd worked on? The answer is always going to be Stanley Kubrick's 2001. But of course they started shooting that before I was actually born. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Only just. Yeah. It came like, out when I was two. What I'd like <laughs> them to do is to uh, remake Contact and you could do the special effects on that. Could do that. You know, Kit advised on the physics for Contact because he was big friends with Carl Sagan. And uh, he had some interesting ideas about how it could be done now. So, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, that's interesting. And uh, one final question. What are you working with Christopher Nolan on now? Chris is making a new movie uh, called Tenet, and uh, Dean Egg is doing all the visual effects for it again. So we've been his uh, exclusive visual effects company since uh, 2009, since we started working on Inception. And uh, right now we're getting Venom 2 off the ground. There's lots of exciting stuff coming up over the next year. There certainly is, and I fully admit that I love Interstellar. And I think one of the reasons why I loved Interstellar is because in some ways it does feel like almost a sequel to Carl Sagan's Contact. Maybe not a sequel as such, but a sort of parallel version to it. If you don't know Carl Sagan's Contact, I strongly recommend that you read the book. It is a wonderful piece of science fiction, which was made into the film starring Jodie Foster playing Ellie Arroway. Now, Ellie Arroway is one of my favourite characters from all fiction. 
She's a scientist, she's a radio astronomer working in SETI, using radio astronomy to look for signs of extraterrestrial intelligence. I caught up with Jill Tarter, the former director of SETI, and asked her whether she felt that Carl Sagan had based Ellie Arroway on her. Well, Carl wrote a book about a woman who does what I do, and that's the character that Ellie Arroway portrayed by Jodie Foster in the movie. Carl was a colleague for uh, for a long time, and he was on our board of trustees at the SETI Institute. He also worked with our scientists as a consultant and, and advisor. I was in Ithaca, New York, at a conference uh, for another reason, and, and Carl came up and said, why don't you come out to the house tonight? We're having a cocktail party. And I, so I went, and he took me over in the corner, and he said, Actually, Anne, his wife, said, Carl's writing a science fiction book. And I said, I know, I know. The New York Times told us how much he got for <laughs> as an advance last weekend, and we were all terribly jealous. Smiled, and, and, and Annie said, well, you may think you recognize someone in the book, but I think you'll like her. I said, oh, 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 oh. I said, okay, look, as long as she doesn't eat ice cream cones for lunch. No one's going to think it's me. Back in the day, we were uh, located at uh, NASA Ames, and on the base, there was a Baskins and Robbins. And <laughs> that was the best, you know, that's, that was the best lunch. Be an ice cream cone. You got a little exercise walking over there and back, but uh, <laughs> without a lot of extra time. Also, when Carl sent me a free publication copy of the book, I thought that um, the character was amazing. I, I read it and I said, well, wait, wait, Carl didn't know this about me. How could he know this? <laughs> really? It was, uh, it was pretty amazing. And then um, I had years before sent Carl a report from American Association of University Women, meeting that I'd participated in just after I finished graduate school, which for me was pivotal. There was a bill being introduced into Congress by uh, Ted Kennedy to provide funding for women who had been in the scientific workforce or engineering workforce and had dropped out, stepped back in order to raise a family. And now they wanted to re-enter the workforce, but of course needed a lot of training for catching up with all that had happened in the interim. And to celebrate it, there was a meeting in Washington, D.C., to which I was invited. And this meeting was completely singular in my experience because I walked into a room that was filled with 80 women. Uh, 80 smart, really uh, intense uh, and delightful women. And the contrast was that I had come out of an engineering school where I was the only woman out of 300 students. It was great. And we did some demographics. You know, how, how is it that we managed to make it through the pipeline, at least to getting PhDs, when so many other women um, decided not to continue? And we found a lot of things in common that surprised us. For example, uh, as in my own case, many of us had fathers who were the centers of our universe and they died when we were young. And well, that was strange or startling to, to have that connection. But then we, we did a little bit of armchair psychology and figured out 
well, what it had done is it had taught us all this carpe diem lesson, right? Grab the opportunities because they might not be there tomorrow. Most of us learn that lesson a lot later in life. This was a painful way to learn it early and it had a big impact. So we were all um, more adventurous and willing to take risks and grab onto opportunities that came our way. Lots of other things like more than half of us were either cheerleaders or drum majorettes in high school. I don't know what they have in the UK, but in in the US, this is not usually considered a real scholarly or nerdy kind of uh, occupation, but it was all early times before Title IX. And so there were no women's sports teams in in the high schools we went to, and, and we were all competitors. And so what did you compete? What could you compete for? To become a cheerleader, or in my case, a drum major. So it was these kinds of things, it turns out I'm pretty prototypical of women my age who ended up going into male dominated fields. And so Carl had these data and, and he wove it all into the story. And obviously the book became the film. Did you get to be a part of that process at all? I actually got involved a little bit. It was wonderful. I got to talk with Jodie Foster about the character and the role. And before they started filming, we'd have quite long phone conversations and it would be not about um, the fine points of radio astronomy and observing or any kind of astrophysical discussions. Although Carl did routinely have those with the cast. Jody wanted to know things like, do astronomers have egos? Hmm, I said, nah, well, yeah. (laughs) We're all fine except the infrared astronomers. <laughs> but it was all about, for her, it was all about um, not teaching anyone astronomy, but trying to portray um, the main character as being some uh, a human with incredible passions and stubbornness and curiosity and trying to make the role into something that would appeal to young people and to motivate them, inspire them to go into science. And I think it did that very well. I thought that Jodie Foster did a really good job. She's she's quite brilliant. She's a very smart lady and actually turns out to be quite kind. I would get these handwritten thank you notes from her while she was sitting in her trailer in Socorro, waiting for the rains to stop as they were filming. And when I when I was in Puerto Rico, when they were filming at the um, Arecibo Observatory, had a great opportunity to take Jody up into the, um, the, the Gregorian Dome at that radio telescope. And inside, I pointed out to her that it was, it was like um, the Whispering Dome in, uh, is it St. Paul's Cathedral oh, in yeah. London? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I actually said, you know, for, for an astronomer, this is our cathedral. Mm-hmm. We get to view the universe from here, and um, it is an awesome and powerful place. I also enjoyed the fact that she spent a lot of time standing on a box, because Matthew McConaughey's pretty tall. <laughs> 
they needed the close-up and they needed the two heads on the same level. She'd be on a box. If you've seen Interstellar, you understand that Matthew McConaughey got to practice talking about if you travel and come back, everyone you ever knew and loved is all going to be, they're going to be dead and gone. Because he did exactly that scene with Jodie Foster uh, in contact. If I weren't doing what I am doing or was doing, the technology involved with making the movie is just amazing. It's really, really complicated and fascinating. What What is a typical day at SETI? Is there a typical day at SETI? Well, actually, not as glamorous and sexy as you'd think, because we have spent a great deal of time teaching our computers how to do this search. And so they run um, with minimal human interaction every day, looking through enormous volumes of data in real time and following up on signals that they um, discover. And it's only those signals where the machine has automatically run through a cycle of five different follow-up tests that uh, humans actually get alerted and we get told, hey, Something's, something's interesting. Take a look at this. And that doesn't happen very, very often. It, it, it's happened, um, well, only I think once since, since we installed the system and we're testing it. Then, then we used to get alerts all the, all the time. But we spend our time uh, looking at data output, looking at screens, writing papers, uh, looking for funding, it's a big challenge for us uh, talking with students and uh, trying to figure out what we could do to do the search better, to, um, to look for different classes of signals that we currently don't have sensitivity to. Right. Dreaming up, what would a machine be like that could do this or could do that? How would you build it? Um, what do we need to build it? What would it cost? Uh, how could we interface it to the Allen Telescope Array, which is the uh, instrument that we're using at the SETI Institute? Just basically, how do we do our job better? You know, it's this whole new big data scenario, looking for things not by asking specific questions that you think are important and you think will get you the answers that you need, but looking at the data and letting it be organized and clustered in different ways that you hadn't thought of to see what pops out. And there's an outlier over here in the clustering and what are those signals like and, and what would be the easiest parameters uh, to focus on in order to capture those in the future. So we're trying to learn from the data that we've acquired all these years um, in order to eventually build it back into the real-time system to allow us to do things better. Sheer amount of data, is that sort of what holds the, the search back most? Yes, certainly. Um, so I'll give you an analogy which is 
numerically fairly accurate. The space that we're exploring for an electromagnetic signal is nine-dimensional, right? So you've got three dimensions of space, one of time, two polarizations, an unknown modulation scheme. Uh, you don't know what frequency to to search, and and you don't know how sensitive you have to be. I mean, you could get all you could guess all the other eight. Uh, combinations correctly, but you might just not have enough sensitivity because the transmitter might be too far away or not powerful enough. So this nine-dimensional space is is <laughs> pretty daunting. Yeah. And if you just said, okay, thought experiment, let's take that total volume that we think we might need to explore to find a signal and set that equal to the volume of the Earth's oceans. Okay, since Frank Drake did the first SETI search back in 1960, how much of that ocean, how much of that search space have we explored? And the answer turns out to be, yeah, about a glass, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's not because we haven't been working on it. Yeah. Um, it's because we haven't yet had the appropriate tools, the tools that are fast enough for this overwhelming search. So our antennas at the Allen Telescope Array, there are 42 of them. Each one of them provides us with 9 gigahertz of data every second, right? <laughs> right. So it's two, and two polarizations, so that's 18 gigahertz of data. And that's an enormous fire hose. So the first thing we have to do is ah, filter a little bit of the frequencies that are coming from the telescope. The rest just falls on the floor for now. Mm -hmm. And where we are right now, we're able to work with enterprise servers on about 130 gigabits per second. <laughs> That's our data rate that we're looking at in real time. As we get to upgrade our servers, we can do that better. As we learn how to look for other types of signals in other ways, we can do that better. Our goal is to be able to get our backend processing fast enough, broad enough, smart enough to go and mate with that huge fire hose of data coming off of the antennas. They're not comparable at all yet. And and that's been the the story of SETI to to date. We just haven't had tools that are actually commensurate with this very large search. Yeah. So, you know, as we go forward, we may even rethink this ocean, this nine-dimensional space. Maybe we're not looking for the right thing yet. It may be that in some future time, we discover zeta rays I don't know what they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The technology, the physics, we don't yet have, but we might have in the future. And these might turn out to be absolutely the very best way to transmit information over interstellar distances. And so, well, then we'll have to add zeta rays yeah. to our our mix. So it's it's a big, big search. Mm -hmm. But nobody's yet discouraged. 
even though we've only sampled that one glass. Yeah. As we know, we're going to get the ability to do it faster tomorrow, assuming we can keep the place funded and keep going. Just returning to contact, Ellie Arroway, this character who shares some of your characteristics and does the same job that you do, in the film, she has the opportunity to travel into deep space to meet whatever it is that's out there. And as Jodie Foster playing Ellie Arroway in the film says, she's okay to go. Are you okay to go? Oh, in a heartbeat. Yes, absolutely. Right? My husband and I have these discussions. He doesn't like that answer. (laughs) Yes, I certainly would. Fantastic. Thank you very much indeed. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, do keep looking. Thank you, Andrew. We're doing it. I hope that's inspired you all to go and find your copy of Contact and watch it again. I did say to Paul Franklin in that interview that I'd like them to remake it. But actually, one of the things that I love most about Interstellar is that it isn't another film remade. It's a new story in its own right, based out of the science that Kip Thorne and others were doing. And another story that came out of the science was The Martian, written by Andy Weir. And when I spoke to Andy Weir, I began by asking him how the book had become the film. I finished it, and and I thought, okay, well, that's it. Now on to my next serial. And I got emails from people saying, oh, hey, I love your book, but I hate reading it on a website. Can you make an e-reader version? So I made an e-reader version and posted it to the site. And then I got email from other people, and they said, oh, uh, I love your book, and I see there's an e-reader version, but I'm I'm not very technically savvy, and I don't know how to download an EPUB or a Mobi and put it on my e-reader. Can you just put it up on Kindle so that I can use their interface to get it? So I figured out how to do that. They have a self-publishing thing, Amazon Kindle does. Uh, it costs you nothing. They just take a cut of the cover price, and um, and that's it. So that was easy to set up. And I'm like, there you go. Now you can either read it for free on my website, uh, download it for free uh, as an you know an e-reader format, or you can pay Amazon a buck to put it on your Kindle for you. And um, that was because, oh yeah, I, I was not allowed to set the price to zero. You have to set it to at least 99 cents US. And so that's what I did. I, I set it at the minimum. And more people bought it from Amazon than downloaded it for free from my site, which is because Amazon has a huge reach into the readership market. And also people are willing to pay a buck to avoid the hassle of like manually loading an EPUB. So anyway, it started to work out. It started to, it got good reviews and people posted positive comments about it. And it started working its way up the top sellers list until it eventually got to, uh, it, it got to number one on a few of them, like number one sci-fi, number one like that. And it, and it got into the top 20 Kindle. And so it was selling really well. Once you get into those lists, it starts to really snowball because, you know, people are like, oh, I want to read a science fiction. What are the top 10, you know? Um, and then that's when Crown Publishing, the uh, an imprint of Random House, um, came knocking, basically. <laughs> I had an agent come to me, and then Crown came to me, and, and uh, everything worked from there. And around the same time, 20th Century Fox came for the movie rights, and the print deal and the movie deal were uh, four days apart. <laughs> That was, that was an eventful week. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, congratulations again. But I, I wondered how the story came together for you. 
I was speculating on how we could do a manned Mars mission. I was sitting there thinking, okay, so how do we get people to Mars? How do we keep them alive when they're on Mars? How do we get them back? How do we do this plausibly without saying like, oh, we'll just spend a hundred trillion dollars on to make a giant spaceship? No. How, what, what is a cost-effective yet safe way to do it? And then I thought, okay, now how do you deal with various failures that could happen on a mission? And how do you make sure that you don't kill the crew? Say. So I started considering, what if this goes wrong? What if that goes wrong? What if this other thing goes wrong? What if these two things go wrong at the same time? How do you make sure the crew stays alive? And I started to realize, well, that, this might make for an interesting story. So I made one unfortunate protagonist and subjected him to all of it. When I was writing it, I wasn't really writing it for a general audience. I thought I was writing it just for the, uh, I had a core readership of about 3,000 readers that I'd accumulated slowly over 10 years with short stories and web comics and things like that. And um, they were all like science dorks like me. They're all like very, very technical, scientifically minded people. And so I, I was writing the story really for them. So for, for hardcore dorks like me, I, I had no idea that it would have broad appeal. I, it never occurred to me that it would be anything other than a completely niche story that like very few people would enjoy. But I don't, I, I don't know what happened. I, I wish I knew what I did right. <laughs> but, uh, but so that's why it's so, that's why I put so much work into technical accuracy. It was just, it was really important to me to tell a story that I myself would enjoy reading. And then also I figured like my readers were, were like me and that they, they wanted that. So you're writing it as a serialized thing. So did you know the whole story mapped out when you were writing it? I knew what I wanted the climax to be and the and the the ending, but I didn't really know how I was going to get there. So I just kind of tried to I tried to let it flow naturally. There's a lot of different sciences in it. I assume you had to do more research for some aspects than others. Um, yeah, a fair amount because I've always been a fan of a uh, manned spaceflight and the space industry in general, and I, I had a pretty strong background in physics. Um, I didn't know anything about chemistry or electronics or a bunch or, or certainly nothing about botany. And so uh, a lot of these things that I had, I, I had to kind of like do a bunch of research on. But physics, I was strong on. So I would say like, OK, here's a situation. Um, and I start start saying things like, oh, oh, OK, so how does he survive? Like, so this isn't much of a spoiler. Like he starts growing potatoes inside of his habitat. So he and and so I'm like, OK. I, I came up with a reason why he had viable potatoes to chop up and, and, and grow more potatoes with. But um, I, I was like, okay, what does it exactly take? And so I started doing kind of deeper research into like, how would you grow potatoes with Martian soil? And I quickly realized after doing all the math that he wouldn't have anywhere near enough water. And so I'm like, okay, now I have to come up with, uh, you know, how he ends up acquiring enough water and that was like turned out to be this really cool part of the book and just this major sequence of plot points that i wouldn't have even thought of if i hadn't sat down and done the math and realized that he would need a lot more water because if it had been if i hadn't done the math and realized how much water it would take to grow those potatoes i would have said like oh well whatever they have water for the mission you know to for the astronauts to drink and they have a recycling system so it shouldn't be a problem but turns out it would be a problem. It's a huge problem. <laughs> and solving it was like a couple of chapters of really interesting stuff. So that that came up a lot. And so uh, I was I was really happy with that. Also sitting down and doing the math on like power consumption and like the needs of like how to keep his rover functioning and stuff like that turned out to make things really interesting because it's like, okay, well, it's like this balancing act 
of like, how do I get enough power? How do I bring enough power generation with me when I'm driving? And, and it, it's all, it, it was great. It was all stuff that if I hadn't, if I hadn't done the math on it, I, I wouldn't have even known that he would run into that problem. Uh, that's brilliant. As you say, the science and math driving the story is wonderful. But does, is it is that actually quite difficult to turn that into the story there written on the page and obviously eventually in the film? That was the biggest challenge was like I trying to trying to get that information across the reader without looking like a Wikipedia article and without being boring and also without overwhelming them like don't. There's a bunch of stuff that I consider really exciting and interesting because I'm that kind of nerd, but I realize like most people aren't. And so just because it's interesting to me doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be interesting to everyone else. And and also there are cases where I spent hours and hours doing the math on something and coming up with an answer and going like, oh, yes, yes, here it is. Here's the answer. And I realize it's going to be like one sentence in the book. And and I'm like frustrated. I'm like, it, it, it took me a long time to write this. It should take you a long time to read it. <laughs> but uh but I have to, you know, I'd have to say like, oh yeah, I did the math, and it turns out I need, you know, 17 liters of 50 atmosphere oxygen to do this, or something like that. Sometimes I was like, oh, I wish I could show off some more. <laughs> I know you said that you're just that you were writing for a specific audience, not this wider audience, but it is very cinematic. It's it's cinematic, yeah, I'll admit it. <laughs> <laughs> were, you, were you thinking of it becoming a film? Well, sure. I think every writer ponders that like everyone when you're coming up with a story idea when you're writing a book you're like ah what would it be like if they made a movie yeah um and yeah i think i while i was writing it i see i'm more of a visual entertainment guy i really like uh, movies and tv so i i think when when i'm writing what i'm really doing is writing down kind of a movie i'm seeing in my mind if you're reading a third person narration or even in often cases a first person narration you you get the sense that this is being told to you that this happened a long time ago and you're having it told to you now like in a first person narration it's almost like you imagine the the whole thing is done and it's this guy telling you about what happened to him right but with a log format everything happened that day so it's like okay here's what happened today and then the next entry is like okay here's what happened today and i don't know at, at the time i'm telling you this i don't know what'll happen tomorrow and so that that gives you that sense of immediacy. Yeah, and that energy really comes across in the film version of it as well. Is Matt Damon playing you? <laughs> Largely, uh, Mark Watney is is certainly based on my own personality. I'm definitely a smartass, and I like to think I'm I'm resourceful and stuff. But I'm I'm not as smart as he is. So I guess what I would say is um, Mark Watney is what I wish I were. He's he's all of my good points magnified and he, he's better at all the things i'm good at and he has none of my flaws well, thank you very much indeed to andy weir jill tarter and paul franklin for talking to me for this episode of the physics world stories podcast you can hear the rest of that interview that i did with andy weir on my podcast the cosmic shed which you can find at thecosmicshed.com and i hope that physics world won't mind me adding that if you are interested in science and the movies then you might if you're anywhere near bristol on december the 10th be interested to know that we the cosmic shed are screening the classic tron in the planetarium here in bristol and we'll be exploring the science of computer games with dr pete etchells who wrote the book lost in a good game and all the profits will be going to special effect a wonderful charity 
who help people with physical disabilities get gaming. But if you can't get there or you're not near Bristol, then there's plenty more Physics at the Movies on the Physics World website, physicsworld.com, and in the Physics World magazine, including my interview with Benedict Cumberbatch and Jess Wade's interview with Daniel Radcliffe. Next month on the podcast, it's the Physics World Book of the Year. Thank you very much for listening. Physics World.